welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Scherba, and today I have the extreme pleasure of sitting down with Matt Abrams, who's an advisor, investor, board member, and founding partner of Democracy Capital. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on. Before we get into all the questions, why don't you take us through your career and personal journey leading up to today? It's a it's a long story. I'll try to keep it brief and, and pull the hook on me at any point. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate to be guardrail to guardrail. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, I started off early days, ground floor of the internet. So um, I attribute a lot of things to to good fortune in terms of timing and luck and timing. Uh, and uh, I was uh, at Northwestern when Mark Andreessen was still down at the University of Illinois shipping up this thing called Mosaic. And we're like, hey, what's this What's this, what, what, this web browser? Uh, and so got into the ground floor there, uh, then uh, went out to DC, got my start across different government agencies in the data analytics world. I got recruited out to Silicon Valley during dot-com one uh, and uh, did the the journey through that. Um, was fortunate enough to to really be at the, again, ground floor of, of the early dot-com days there. Uh, and then led some industry standards bodies, ended up getting acquired by Oracle, uh, and then randomly jumped into venture and uh, have spent the last... You know, decade uh, roughly in and out of venture in, in one capacity or, or another, both as one of the founding partners of, of our own fund here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, did a couple different funds there. Now advise uh, a couple of different funds, TFX Capital and Atypical Ventures. And in the midst of starting uh, my own next fund with a handful of other partners as well. Uh, and so um, I would say my career has not been this this straightforward journey. Uh, and but it's been one through constant curiosity, learning, and and a lot of luck in in terms of timing as well. Right place, right time. Wow. I mean, it, I, I feel like whenever I hear luck and timing for someone who's you know achieved, I guess success. And I know this is a topic that we'll talk about. What exactly does success mean, right? But you know, in the, in the typical, generally accepted uh, uh, definition of the word, in terms of. Uh, career success in terms of having ascended through ranks, ha- having had impact in, in in organizations that you've been in or, or founded, right? Uh, you've done that across a lot of different industries and kind of uh, types of, of organizations, whether, like you said, in Silicon Valley and government agencies and technology and then in venture capital. Pivoting between those and transitioning between them, how different were those spaces and what did you have to do to be able to stay uh, in a high performing state as you move kind of from one to the next? I don't know if, if I would say that they were necessarily too different in, in many respects. Um, if I, if I reflect on just career and, and, and industry wise, you know, they're frankly, they have a, a lot more similarities than they are differences. I think that the, the, the biggest the biggest difference, if you will, is I think throughout, I was, I was expecting uh, in many aspects, I'll, I'll give the example in terms of venture, uh, probably is the most poignant example. I was expecting when I jumped into to venture after being in startups and, and enterprise organizations, I was expecting that I was going to be learning all these tremendous things um, on boards and from folks who have been there, done that, so on and so forth. And, um, yes, you learn some things, but I think the reality was that, um, um, you know, there was a, someone had made the comment, I've been in, uh, all the, all the rooms with all the smartest people in the, in the world and they're not that smart. <laughs> and, um, I think that what I was finding and have found is that, um, the commonality across all of these is that you're constantly, you know, pushing yourself to around your own curiosity to learn, to grow, to expand upon things. Uh, and that's probably the, the commonality aspects, but the, the surprise aspects are, have been, wow, people don't have it all figured out. Yeah. And I was expecting throughout each of the career areas just to, wow, others have all this stuff figured out. Yeah. And 
that I'd be learning a lot more from. And, and that just hasn't been the case, if you will. And I guess, what's the reaction to that? Because I think I've walked into similar rooms, uh, maybe at times with senior leaders, let's say in my own organizations or in client organizations. And, you know, when you get past that initial moment of being impressed, let's say, by the way that somebody speaks or the deep technical knowledge they're able to just cite and recite at, at you know, at, at, a, at a whim, right? And articulately, let's say, smoothly, charismatically, right? Those things often impress initially, but then when you peel layers back, to your point, you realize, well, they actually don't have everything figured out. I'm curious what your reaction to that is, because for me in the past, it's actually been disappointing because you kind of build up some of these figures or you have expectations going into some of these rooms or interactions. And it feels sometimes like almost like a bit of a letdown. I, th- I think it, it's partly a letdown. I think it's partly it, it, you, know, you get into the oh shit moments that there's no one here to, to save us other than ourselves. Right. Yeah. We got to figure it out. Um, you know, we talked to, you know, before we jumped on about our kids and I, I tell my kids is to, um, you know, look, everyone's trying to figure it out. And I use a crass phrase often where it's like, look, um, everyone shits the same way and nobody looks good doing it. Yeah. And I think it's really important to, we've, you know, so often in, in our society today as well, we're, we're putting people up on pedestals. And we put people in, in because of their net worth, because of a title that they might have, persona, you mentioned the charisma, so on and so forth. And we're expecting that, oh, they have all the answers figured out. And we're in, you know, we have tough problems and we're in a complex world and environment. And the job is on us to do our best with the, the, the best information to try to problem solve, not to rely upon right. some mythical figures or people we put up there as to, oh, the, those people are successful uh, because they have it all figured out in, in, this, in this hypothesized type of you know, mindset, if you will. And I think most people are looking for um, that, oh, somebody else has it handled, right? <laughs> and it's, it's on each of us. Has there ever been somebody that, or, or is there somebody that stands out in your memory that maybe has come closest to holding up to expectation? I think that one of the folks that I work with right now, uh, actually, actually a couple folks. And, and so um, one, uh, Dr. Celine Gounder, um, you know, Celine is one of those folks that uh, has a tremendous amount of, of of expertise, skill set, and, and her respective field and area, and also she's she's both deep and and broad, and is just a very thoughtful you know thinker in in many respects, and and I know pushes me to think beyond you know the just just the typical. Um, Matthew Trinell is another uh, person who comes to mind who um, just is, is you know an amazing thinker in terms of what he puts out there, uh, and frankly, I'll put my wife. My wife is constantly pushing me, uh, and, and that is how to be a better person, how to how to improve upon things. Uh, and I think that's one of the most valuable, important things that that you can find in in anyone. I love that, and you know, I think we've kind of brushed up against the topic, and, and I know it was something that in our initial conversation uh, that elicited quite a, quite a response from you. And I, I'd love to understand maybe your definition of what success should mean potentially because to your point i think a lot of the time people default to things like you know titles that they've achieved or net worth that they've achieved or whatever the case might be but what is maybe a more impactful or grounded way to look at success in in your opinion look i think at the end of the day is um what have we contributed um to the world uh have we been a decent kind good human being that has has enabled others to to fulfill their potential and um, to be better than they are uh, on their own. I, it, you know, if I frame it back to, to my kids in this respect, um, you know, success for me with my kids is really simple. It, it, you know, uh, are they kind and decent people? Yeah. Um, uh, will they be able to contribute to the world and make the world a better place? And will they be able to financially support themselves or a family, if they so choose, um, none of that there has to do anything with title. None of that has right. to do anything in terms of net worth. Yeah, ne- you know. And if if I look at, you know, I think we we'd spoken about this before as well. Even, even during COVID, you know, we framed as to who are the essential workers, 
Right. Essential workers were not folks in, in the technology or software world or things like that generally. Essential workers were the physicians and doctors and, and frontline healthcare workers at the time. The essential workers were the grocery store workers, you know, right. the supply chain delivery, you know, so and so forth workers. And so um, we, and particularly from a technology world and ecosystem, um, I think we've done a, uh, you know, this even gets to our education aspect where we promoted, hey, if you want to be anything in the world, you need to go through STEM education. Like there was a whole wave of let's focus on on STEM education, and in the process we failed in terms of what about philosophy and ethics and history, so on and right. so forth. And oftentimes in the tech world, your status <laughs> is based upon what company you're at. Oh, what title do you have? So on and so forth. The same thing was true in DC. In DC, it was very much you know who do you know, what do you do, what do you drive, you know, what's your title, so on and so forth. And yet, essential workers were those who, uh, I think, for for far too long, have oftentimes been denigrated upon. So success is, are, you know, let's start with the bare minimum. Are we a decent, kind human being? What do we want our kids to be like? What do we? Yeah. What? Who do we want them to emulate? Like those are pretty basic things. At the end of the day, that. Wow, that's that's success to me. I think that's really powerful. And I, and if I'm completely transparent and candid, you know, I'm still a decade into my career. I feel like especially over the course of 120 plus conversations on this podcast, my definition of success has maybe changed a little bit over the last 2 years. And that is a byproduct of learning from people like you through conversation. But I would be lying if I said that I had completely shaken the desire to continue to progress to new career stages, to continue to, you know, uh, have bigger impact uh, to, with large client organizations from a prestige perspective, right? To have that translate into monetary reward so I could do the things for my family I want to do for them and, and also for myself, right? From a material perspective. And so that's still there. But I think, you know, most people, especially early on in their career, can absolutely get lost in the hustle and the grind and the chasing of the next career stage, the next great company to put on their resume, you know, the next 20% increase in pay. At what point did you start to open up your perspective to kind of the definition of success you just articulated? And, you know, how did you and what drove that? Because I think not everyone, you know, has spent 150 hours talking to to, you know, experience, let's remove the word success, to experienced people like maybe I have, or I've had a couple of decades of career like you have across different industry, different spaces, right? Being in rooms with some of the smartest people to shape the perspective. So where did it come from for you? I think for, for me, this came from probably early on in, in, in growing up in childhood aspects. That's, that's number one. And I'll come back to that. But number two uh, is... Um, and as well, being able to ha also have um, access to folks that um, were in, in high-profile positions and 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 um, seeing and learning as to wow, they're they're not exactly happy people. And and there's one there's one thing I want to come back on that you you, you said. Hey, you, you still have this drive in terms of, hey, you want to progress and you want to be able to, to get to this financial means and you want to be able to have this impact. Look, I think, you know, call it ego, right? Our ego, our drive, so on and so forth is really important to keep pushing us forward to, to, mm. to keep achieving. Um, right. And at the same time, it is how do you balance that with just humility? And there's a, there's a good song by Dean Lewis. It, it's called falling up where he talks about how, Hey, if I get to this point in my life that I'm going to be happy. If I, if I achieve this success, if I have this album, this record, this song and this many listeners, wow, then I'll be happy. I will have achieved success. And, and he calls it falling up because his career, he's been fortunate. He's falling up, not down, but right. he, every time he fall, falls up, it's like, okay, I need to, to achieve one more thing. And to ultimately get happiness and contentment. And look, I'll be the first to say that I am, I am driven by, um, not by the dollar aspects, but it's this constant curiosity, constant learning and, and constantly wanting to have an impact. And, um, 
there's you know absolutely you know ego or uh, insecurity or whatever you want to roll up into that. Um, at the same time, it's recognizing that you know some of the folks that I've been fortunate to be able to spend time with that might be some of the wealthiest people you know out there are oftentimes the most miserable, and you know part of I think success aspects is, you know, we have for so long, uh, the, the, the purely capitalistic or, or negatively capitalistic side has been monetizing everything. And it's the keeping up with the Joneses. And I tell my kids, this, I tell others, this is that, Hey, your job is to get yourself to a place that by the time you're in your forties, that you are not tied to any golden handcuffs. You're not tied to a particular job that you have freedom and flexibility. And so often what happens is, um, is that, you know, we, um, it's sort of like you, you buy a bigger house where you're going to fill it with more things, right? You a bigger paycheck. You're going to spend more dollars. You're going to be doing this. That's great in one respect, but make sure or do your best where, you don't have to be tied to a certain income, right? Like when you hit your forties, yes, there are responsibilities you have. Yes, there are wants and desires, so on and so forth. But how do you give yourself financial flexibility where, Hey, I can pull the ripcord from this cushy corporate job, or I don't have to be working X many jobs, so on and so forth, just to make ends meet. How do you get people to, to, to get there? And this, this opens up a lot of, you know, conversations we get in, get into, the cost of healthcare in this country, education, other things, but that's a, yeah. that's, that's a, that's a rabbit hole. Um, but I think that, you know, for me as well, a lot of this was, you know, I grew up in a, in a poor lumber town and I grew up, you know, youngest of four. I had, um, a father who was a, he was a Jewish doc in a very, uh, conservative, poor lumber town in Southern Oregon where, um, there were, it was the height of the spotted owl debate and you had loggers that that's all they knew how to do was cut down a tree and they go to cut down a tree and their chainsaw would hit a spike that a radical environmentalist would have put in that tree. The chainsaw would kick back, cut them in half and they'd end up in the hospital with my dad working on them. On the flip side, because he was a doctor, we got to hang out with the mill owners and a lot of that time, uh, it was the mill is going through a lot of automation and it was the workers were caught in the middle where, you know, never were they being told, Hey, you're losing your job because in part automation, you're losing your job because of this, this, this owl. And, um, I've seen that I was able to see both sides as a teenager, if you will, as to the worker aspect, the, company aspect, the health aspect, the environmental side. Um, and we're in a similar phase right now, you know, with the, it's no different with AI and automation yeah. there. So I've been fortunate throughout, you know, life and career uh, to be able to see and to recognize and understand, wow, here are people that have advantages. Here are people that have disadvantages. Yeah. And, you know, how do we, how do we recognize people for who they are as human beings, not based upon their title or their salary or anything else? I mean, that that's really powerful to have experienced at such a young age. Now, I can only imagine that that sort of perspective from such a young age carrying through forwards into your career may have particularly had an impact once you moved into venture capitalism as an investor. Maybe tell me a little bit about that shift in to venture capitalism and how that perspective maybe shaped what success meant to you as an investor. I think, I think it, uh, is still very much having an impact on me. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, um, venture does my, my learnings around it and the, the importance of it are, are, I think are, are really valuable to, to, to dig into. And what I mean, what I mean by that is venture has been an amazing catalyst for, new innovations that we, we have seen, you know, introduced into the world. There's no question there. And at the same time, um, what I recognized as well is, um, venture, uh, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll more broadly speak of the capital ecosystem. I refer to it now where our capital ecosystem has been set up of 
you know, we've seen the last 50 years of what I call Milton Friedmanism plus 20 years of attention economy and business models uh, have some pretty detrimental impacts on the world. And we're seeing that in terms of our, our societies writ large. And what I mean by that is that, that my view on venture has been that um, amidst all of the, the great things venture is invested in, and oftentimes it's abdicated responsibility. And that's what I, I saw a lot of this is that it was so highly short-term returns focused. And I'm generalizing here because it varies between, you know, different size funds where everyone thinks that, hey, if you have venture capital to your title, that you must be rolling in dough. And there are plenty of early stage and new funds, which are smaller funds, but they're, they're struggling. They're like right. startup entrepreneurs themselves. Uh, but more broadly, if we look at the, my experience on, on the venture side, what I, I was struggling with was how do we invest in solutions which are actually strengthening our societies and improving our world as a whole. And I'm sure everyone has seen the chart as to, Hey, we can go out and we can, we can all buy now a, you know, 65 inch television for 150 bucks at your local big box store. But if you want to, you know, afford healthcare, right. if you want to afford education, uh, where's the innovation? Where has that occurred? You know, what's happening there? And, um, it's probably a separate episode altogether of getting into what's been the role of, of, of for instance, private equity and the alternative right. asset class market in, in higher education, in healthcare. And what are we seeing there? But the, the big issues that I've, I've seen is that, um, we, and, and Hamant, uh, uh, Tunisia, uh, general catalyst and Darren Ford is the CEO of, or excuse me, Darren Walker is the CEO of Ford foundation had recently said that it's about time that business leaders uh, stop reaping the profits of disruption only to repent through philanthropy. Oh, interesting. And that is a very, um, um, I think cogent statement in relation to what has been happening in the venture world. Right. And again, it's, it's generalizing, but I would arguably say that venture has abdicated responsibility beyond just purely short-term financial returns. And so my experience there has been, how do we change that? How do we frame that? Where some of the best thing of venture, where, you know, some of the, the innovation that it can drive and some of the processes and methodologies, so on and so forth, and, and the speed that, how do we frame that? And how do we, how do we both encourage, but also, uh, in some respects, mandate what's the opportunity for us to be responsible to benefiting society for the longer term as well. And that is something where that's near and dear to, to my heart is to that's where um, that's success. It's not yeah. just the, the monetary, Hey, I've made a bunch of money over here, but success is, um, not being, you know, in the position where, Hey, I've made a bunch of money off of disrupting X that also has caused significant issues in society. But I am able to, we're all capitalists. I'm able to have financial rewards, but I've been able to make significant positive impacts in society over here. And I think, um, a lot of what I experienced early on, um, was, that was sort of thrown out the window or, or often ignored, if you will, in that respect and only focused on what's that, what's that 10 X multiple in terms of valuation? What's that 10 X, you know, return on pure dollars, so on and so forth. Not one of the, what are the uh, impacts that it has? That's really interesting. So I'm curious, is that part of the driving force that push you towards starting your own fund or, or helping co-found your own fund to be able to have that lens applied to the investing being done? hundred percent. I mean, this is something that, um, you know, we have an opportunity to, you know, I, I tell folks that the way I view it is that we've had a lot of plastic returns in the last 20 years. And how do we um, get to longer term, more equitable and more resilient economic returns? Um, and again, the tangible examples, if I look at our information ecosystem as, as just one aspect there. Um, social media, social media has had a, there have been positive, but horrendously negative impacts 
because of social media aspects and destabilizing aspects on democratic societies across the world. And this is where, um, how do we invest in and how do we provide, you know, longer term and, and ec- economic returns for investing in the right types of solutions that are, are strengthening our democracies. And that's a hard challenge. That's a hard problem. Yeah. And most people are, are, Hey, I can get a quick return off of, of this type of investment. Um, without understanding or even caring about what the ramifications are in terms of the damage it might cause. That's very interesting. I'm curious, uh, uh, this is inherently a huge challenge to want to balance the, the, uh, the capital gains or, or the, the monetary return of the investment, but then also with the long-term uh, positive impact on society, right? And how do you ensure that you've got the right people and the right voices helping assess and make the decision to invest and then also be prepared to mitigate negative impact in the case that, for example, the post initial profits or post return on investment uh, impact of the, the organization you've invested in or product you've invested in doesn't have positive impact, but instead has, let's say, negative, right? And is that part of the, the approach is that if there is net negative, for example, impact on society that you're in place to try and mitigate or course correct some of that on the, on the back end? I think the, the first step is putting the, the right sets of principles in place, first mm. and foremost, on the front end. And we, right. and we haven't had those. And so this is where um, there are a number of efforts underway of, of folks trying to say, how do we be more responsible in our investments and in the technology ecosystem? And you know, what are the potential negative impacts? And I think it's putting together, first and foremost, those initial set of principles and the metrics. You know, we talk about in the, in the social media world, for instance, uh, you know, if I look at the metrics for which we optimize, you know, MDAO, you know, then this is, you know, monthly, daily active users, so on and so forth. It's that engagement, that attention economy, et cetera. And those are, are great metrics on the, on the surface in that respect from just a, a pure dollars and cents perspective that people have not intentionally said, hey, let's go optimize this metric and we know that, that it will have negative downstream impacts. Uh, we have to start you know, thinking about those metrics up front, though, and the incentives that they put in place that might create perverse sorts of, of issues or, uh, or um, you know, as- outcomes we don't want to see. And I think that, that that is step one. Step two is, what's the network of folks around the table? And that is investors, follow-on investors, you know, uh, those who are, are helping those organizations and companies. What's the network that um, has to be established of, of partners in the room to be able to do that follow-on? And right. are folks aligned around those types of things? So the third is just constant education evangelism. What does this mean? What does this look like? How do, how do we think differently in terms of the, the existing environment and ecosystem? And that is a, a long-term constant piece there. I have to imagine that, as you say, establishing the right principles up front and having the commitment and buy-in from those be- who partner to become involved into those principles does set you down the right path to be able to then have that uh, long-term sustained positive impact through the investment as well as you know any of the follow-on work, after the work afterwards, as you described. But does taking that approach... And looking at a more a longer term path to to value and impact, does that, for example, have a shorter mean that there's a bit of a longer path to the same types of returns that you know more traditional venture capitalism would have uh, kind of chased, as you mentioned, abdicating themselves of the responsibility of the post initial return impact of that organization or product or technology or whatever the case is. Is, is there simply is the pace or path to the the value? slower and kind of further away? And how does that impact uh, investment, I guess, or, or get, getting folks to invest? I think it's both. I, I think it's, it's, there are some things that we can expect the same sort of time horizons from the outcomes, results, uh, and others which are much longer term. Um, I don't think it's a, it's a one size fits all. And I think that, that we're in this position now is to, 
you know, how do we reimagine aspects of this? And an example I'll give that is, is totally, you know, uh, tangential, if you will, on this front is a friend of mine, um, was a Green Beret commander uh, in Afghanistan who um, uh, punched out, went to Harvard Business School, and he wanted to do, he went back you know, to Afghanistan as part of his, his thesis is to, um, what would it take from a dollars and cents perspective uh, in terms of how much dollars to give uh, to each province to stabilize a certain province, oh, how much money was too much where it would lead to corruption, and how did that compare or contrast with the current amount of dollars we were spending per soldier per year in Afghanistan? And we were roughly spending a million dollars per soldier per year in Afghanistan at the time. And um, it was a tiny amount of dollars to be able to invest to stabilize a province where people would pick up a shovel to help dig, dig an irrigation canal uh, versus you gave too much money and the amount of corruption that that would lead to. And part of the issue that we see uh, in aspects like that is they don't necessarily make for sexy Hollywood movies. Right. Right. It's a lot sexier in terms of a Hollywood movie to, you know, see door kickers, to see things blown up or things like this versus it is, oh, here's what was done to stabilize or shore up an economic environment and a society as a whole that prov would provide significantly a higher economic return and stability right. versus, hey, it's really cool to see, you know, you know, big explosions or, or war fighters, whatever it may be. That's a very different mindset and requires a, a different education and sale as well. So, and this, that's an example on, on the defense side, if you will, now, take this into any form of investment or any economic return, uh, if you will, as well. What's really, as you kind of describe that, I'm just, you know, it go running through my head and thinking about I, just my understanding, especially of your, your kind of uh, the timeline of your career and the, the portfolio of investing that you've done. You've just seen and been on kind of the bleeding edge of different technologies, different products uh, for so long. I have to imagine that that's like a, a, a hugely inspiring force to, uh, to drive curiosity, to want to learn, to be able to understand and, and, and be able to help steer these, these kind of bleeding edge technologies or products and all these different spaces. Um, what, what is your approach to staying ahead of the curve or, or continuing to learn at a pace that is fast enough to be able to keep up with uh, the pace at which things are evolving and changing and, and, and technology is incrementally increasing in terms of its capability. Look, I think this is one thing if, if, if I could, um, you know, you know, explain to my kids or teach anyone is to the, the thing that constantly is driving me is I'm trying to figure out how, how the world works, trying mm. to figure out this, you know, um, how, do, how things can be improved upon the constant curiosity is the Ted Lasso piece, right? Be curious, not judgmental. Yeah. And the curiosity piece is what is constantly driving us to, Oh, I want to go speak to this person because they're experts in this respective area. I want yeah. to learn from them as much as I can. Oh, you know, Hey, this is this hard problem space and I want to learn more about it. So I'm going to immerse myself in it. Uh, and I think if you, if you approach, um, again, there's a lot of, a lot of luck. It's a lot of hard work, a lot of timing aspects in life. But if you approach a lot of things from the curiosity element where, Hey, I'm really curious about this. So I'm going to go talk to who's the expert in there, regardless of, of what their title is, or, you know, people are willing to share their experiences and they yeah. want to, and it's, and you know, it's a, um, People want to, for our ego, whatever it may be, it's, hey, ask me for advice. So if people can be, if people can learn, particularly young people, is to, hey, go ask, go talk to this person. The worst, that, the worst that's going to happen is that you're going to get the answer no or a non-response. Yeah. Right? The best that's going to happen is, well, you know, doors are going to open and you're going to learn new things and you're going to make new connections. Like if you can do that and teach that, 
like that will lead to further opportunities, whether they are monetary opportunities, whether they're learning opportunities, whatever it may be. I mean, that statement deeply resonates with me. It is validates the entire existence of the podcast and was the why I uh, speak with people like yourself is purely, you know, for the purpose of broadening my own aperture of, of kind of perspective and understanding. And if it happens to also broaden the aperture of others, uh, then that is just a massive plus. But I mean, if nobody listened to this, I'd still do it because I get such incredible value totally. from just having conversations yep. like this. Um, I'd love to peel the thread on the the curiosity aspect, and and here's where I was I was going to go with it. So you can punch holes in this. I sat down with a friend of mine the other day. We hadn't seen each other in, in a couple of years, and he was one of the senior execs at Apple, and he um, ran the Apple iTunes bookstore, and personally got J.K. Rowling into Apple, and had been there for more than than a decade, and now he owns a outdoor consignment store. Okay. Yeah. And he's had the issues where people have walked in and he's at the, at the, at the outdoor consignment store. And it's clearly people have come up from Silicon Valley who uh, in some cases he's been treated like crap because they look at him and like, Oh, he's some outdoor gear person. And, you know, like, and here he was one of the most, you know, senior execs at Apple. And he chose now to do this outdoor consignment store. And, he asked me the first question out of his mouth when I saw him the other day was, Hey, what do you miss about the big corporate, big enterprise world? And I said, there are three things there are, I said, I miss the international travel all the time. I miss my team, my teammates, the people with whom I, I really enjoyed working with. And I miss some of the, the uh, awesome benefits that you oftentimes don't even think about. And so one of those, let's take healthcare as an example. So he, and by the way, his comment was totally agree. Like that is it. And we were talking about the benefits piece and this gets to um, understanding and curiosity. And it's, it's not malintention, but if, if you are someone who's grown up through the tech ecosystem and you've been in this company and this role that, uh, and you've been surrounded by those benefits, you don't understand even what so many other Americans are going through in terms of what they have to do to pay for healthcare or what they have to do in terms of benefits that they just don't have versus big corporate, big enterprise, big secure, which is a smaller section of our society. And so it's not, it's not out of maliciousness. And I wouldn't even say it's out of, ignorance. It's this lack of education awareness that we have or don't have in terms of, hey, tell me what your life is like and how do you how do you pay for things like healthcare? Like I had no idea, honestly, because of, you know, whether, be, you know, from government aspect, from, uh, you know, always being in, in technology land and, and enterprise land, so on and so forth. I was ignorant in my own aspects. And I think that's a really important piece that we totally miss is that we don't understand the the struggles and the aspects and the implications that that folks have to go through because of the way our structures are set up. Like part of it, we're all going a million miles an hour. And even to your point where, hey, my kids and my wife were sick last week. And, you know, I was having to deal with, you know, with the following. Like we, we so rarely, we're, we're, we're too transactional <laughs> and we're, we're not digging deep enough. Well, I, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it is incredibly powerful to be able to step outside one's own kind of microcosm or ecosystem and be able to look outwards and recognize and be aware of kind of how other people live their lives or how, you know, like start small. If you're working like corporate enterprise, like you mentioned, understanding other industries, understanding client side organizations, if you're in professional services or vice versa, right? And then understanding uh, more general labor and services or skilled labor and things like that, or then understanding teachers. That's always been one that's been really interesting to me because, 
I have a handful of people in my life who are teachers and it's such a different world, particularly let's say in Canada, you know, they don't have performance evaluations here where, you know, you could lose pay or lose your job if you're not meeting some criteria or meeting some goals. And that always, because I have come up professionally in high performance corporate environments where that is my reality. I don't understand that. Right. But maybe that's just not how the incentive system is optimally set up for for that profession or that environment. And having that awareness is important, but you don't get there without the curiosity to open your eyes, open your ears, ask, listen, have conversation, read or learn. And I think what you described around kind of your friend and shifting from high powered executive status at, at a company like Apple, right, and literally shaping parts of digital media, right, uh, uh, materially at scale, globally even, to then working in an con- outdoor equipment consignment store, your scope suddenly narrows greatly. But um, I guess I'm, my question to you is simply, because there's probably overwhelming majority of people who find themselves in their little bubble, not pushing outside of it and 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 breaking that mold and looking outwards and, and expanding through curiosity. You know, how, how does one start? If you're to give advice to somebody who maybe hasn't pushed to learn more about the outside of their perspective, what's a, what's an easy way to start? Because I feel like that's a big unlock for people, especially early on in your career. If you can have that level of curiosity and, and pursue those types of broad perspectives and from different places early on, that's going to be an accelerant across your career from there onwards. I think it's, look, it's a luxury. I, I, I want to be really clear that I've had a um, the fortune and luxury to be able to do this for many reasons. And, um, part of that I'm reflecting upon when, when I was just in this standard corporate grind, so on and so forth, I didn't even have the time. Like I didn't have the time to lift up my eyeballs outside this, the, the headlights that were on the ground in front of me. And, and I think, there's a recognition and importance of understanding that most people are, are whether raising kids in a family, whether working in some grind, whether, uh, and they've gotten onto the treadmill, like, you know, time that there is, it's really hard to even find the time in some respects to be able to pick your headlights off the ground in front of you. And whether that's for, again, a high powered quote unquote, you know, corporate worker, or for someone who's having to work three jobs at the same time and figure out how to, to even get to those jobs. Like people are just working their butts off to, and have so little time to even uh, think about alternate things. And so that is a privilege in that respect. So it's, it, it, I could give you some trite sound bite as to, Hey, make the time so and so forth, or, Hey, you need to be, you know, again, constantly curious, so on and so forth. But I also recognize that that in and of itself is, 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 is a privilege. Um, the, 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 the simpler answer, if you will, uh, is um, how do you get yourself, again, um, off their hamster wheel? How do you allocate time where you can be looking at these new perspectives and understanding them and really digging deep. And that's, you just have to make that, make that happen. It's, and there's no, there's no magic around it, but I recognize again, that um, time is a privilege for, for a lot of folks. That's not a guarantee. So we're in this environment and world where it's the same reason that people only read headlines. Some of that is you can say, yes, people are, are, are lazy and you can have that argument. But in other respect, you can say people are super busy and they're reading headlines because they may not even have the time nor the energy to be able to dig deep on that. So that's a, it's a more nuanced answer there. But it's an important one. And, you know, I, I, I think your transparency and candor around having the earn, you know, I would say earned the luxury to get to a point where you have the time to, to look at, uh, outside of the hamster wheel, right? Um, I think is important, but, you know, to kind of meet your candor, I, I'll i give you an example of somebody who's, you know, mid-career stage, right? Uh, and uh, incredibly busy, uh, trying to do all the things at once, whether in work, outside of work, with family, right? For my pers- own personal uh, things, I could, sometimes you realize, ah, you know what? 
my tooth's a little cold sensitive. I need to go get that checked out. And then you blink and six months go by and now your tooth's really sensitive, but you still haven't booked a dentist appointment. And this is coming from someone in, in Canada where it's all free. It's all covered, right? I don't have to worry about it. And uh, in, at least because of my employer and because of the kind of the situation, but, and that is for something as simple as like your own health, right? So now how do you prioritize being curious and exploring new perspectives, new ideas when you can't even get yourself to a dental appointment? And that's a real life example for myself. And I think especially once you have kids or a family, you start to immediately prioritize the things for them over those types of things as well. It's a, it's a challenge. It absolutely is a challenge. And I know for myself, obviously we're talking while recording a podcast, but I listen to podcasts in parallel to doing any like menial physical task or like type of exercise. If I, if, if I'm doing a chore around the house, if I'm going to the store, if I'm driving, if I'm at the gym, literally any situation where I'm not interacting with another person, I've got an earbud in and I'm listening to some form of podcast across some topic that I'm interested in or some general topic. That works for me. And I'm curious if you have it, some, some equivalent of, of that, if it's reading or otherwise. My, mine is uh, constant reading. I actually don't listen to podcasts. Oh, interesting. Uh, or I should say very, very, very rarely. Um, because there's, I'm spending so much time reading and I do a lot of long form reading and I like to read and then write about something. And that's my preferred mode. Um, and, um, then for me, from a podcast perspective, if I'm, you know, heading for a workout, I'm not listening to a podcast or oftentimes I'm not listening to a book. I'm turning on some music and <laughs> that's, that's where I need to shut, shut my brain down. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I need to, to have my own you know, quiet time in, in that respect. So yeah, it's, um, I, I, w- I do wish I could just plug something into my head and, and absorb a lot more in a faster fashion. Um, but it's not there yet. No, that's totally fair. And you know, one could argue that I'm absorbing you're probably, far less. You're probably sitting here going like, "What? Well, you, wait, you're on a podcast here and you don't listen to podcasts? Like, no, no, it's <laughs> totally fair. And you know, what's interesting about that is, is you know, uh, and and my wife will always make this argument is is how much of what you're hearing are you actually retaining, right? Or how much of it is just briefly passing through? And yeah, sure, cognitively, like it's you're understanding it, and, and, and that's great. But how much of it are you retaining, right? If you're listening to hours a day, let's say, and which is also inherently fair, because I probably couldn't recall all the things that I've heard, and that's um, and and I love even what you said, and it was small, but I think it was important. Uh, and whether it's following, hearing something interesting on a podcast, or reading something interesting, or watching something interesting, the act of writing about it to then you know, synthesize a thought will probably translate to retention in a much more uh, uh, impactful way than just letting it pass through you, right? And I think that in itself, like it, it just kind of hearing you say that uh, is, is probably a pretty valuable tactic, let's say. And again, whether you're reading it, whether you're listening to it, or whether you're consuming it through video or otherwise, to, to take that note, even to just write it once to synthesize a thought about the topic, well, I imagine could have a, a significant value towards actually retaining and, and understanding it more deeply. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not just that. By the way, it's not. It's not just re- retaining or synthesizing it. It's allowing, particularly if if you are are going hard on it on a particular subject area topic, it helps you explain it more clearly and tell the story to others, like by that act of writing. And so really sitting down and spending time writing on that, I think is really valuable and important in that respect. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. And do you think that the same thing could be achieved through discussion with others as opposed to writing? So trying to formulate the ideas around a topic or a learning through, through speech, or do you find that writing has a particularly powerful way of, of helping formulate those ideas? One, I think it's different for everybody, but I think to get to the speech, at least for myself, um, it is... Um, I need to, to digest the, the information that whether I'm, I've, I've read that, I need to digest that, synthesize it, and, and write about that in my own form so I can best communicate it to others. Other folks don't. Others may you know, be super fast in terms of their thought processes, so on and so forth. 
But I think it's valuable of being able to get into that habit of, okay, I'm going to read something or listen to something, then I'm going to write about it and spend some time, you know, really framing, you know, what I and how I want to communicate. And then you're in a position to really communicate with others. I think we're, we're, we're too, I think we'd, we'd all be doing a lot better off if we actually spent time on that and, and put some friction into our consumption to speech. Uh, and have the consumption to synthesizing and thinking about it, then to the speech aspect. Instead, we're in this society of, of it's just we're vomiting out our, our perspectives without really thinking about them in a clear, cogent fashion. I think that's really fascinating. The idea of putting some friction between consumption and speech, because you're right, there's absolutely an intentionality to writing words on a page and having to shape a sentence word after word as opposed to just, like you said, vomiting it out or, or parroting it back. Um, that's, that's very fascinating. And for me, uh, absolutely something that, that I'm going to take away from this conversation. And I, I imagine others who are listening would as well. Um, just even to, to experiment with and see and compare as to how that works for me as an individual. I think that's, that's an incredibly valuable takeaway. Um, from here, I would love to to talk a little bit about the space of data and AI. Uh, obviously, you hinted at it earlier in terms of the impact that AI is having on different workforces or industries, and and uh, obviously you've got a long career with uh, of at different points focusing on the world of analytics and, and data. And I'd love to kind of, especially with the onset of um, generative AI over the last kind of twelve to eighteen months. And just the mass, uh, widespread adoption and activation of it. It's not to say that AI didn't exist before. Obviously, it did in the worlds of automation and machine learning for you know decade plus. But it seems to be being used and consumed in such a different way in this moment. And suddenly, everyone's imagination has broadened, and the the desire to activate it has heightened and become more more aggressive. I'm curious to see. Where do you think the big areas of disruption are going to be and maybe what industries and in what form in terms of AI in its current form? Look, I, I think that one, the framing is there's huge potential and, and there, there's plenty we can all read and, and digest in terms of, hey, here's where, where AI is going, here's what it's doing, so on and so forth. Um, there's huge potential for, for good, there's huge potential for bad. Yeah. <laughs> and this this is where... Um, you know, fundamentally, uh, if I look at some of the, uh, the areas today, everyone talks about healthcare, for instance, or I should say everyone, there's a lot of talk in relation to what healthcare uh, opportunities are. And I see tremendous areas of opportunity in multiple aspects across healthcare. The issue that we're running into in, in the case or some of the issues that we're running into in the case of, of, of really having these things prove real value is how are they trained? Well, they're trained off of data. They're trained off of our, you know, existing data sets as well as they're now being trained off their own generative data sets, if you will. Right. And it very simplistically garbage in, garbage out. Part of our problem in so many industries is that we don't have quality standardized data on which to train these systems uh, where we can have high reliability. And so one of the biggest issues and, and areas of opportunity I see is how do we uh, invest in, how do we create the new solutions and technologies that allow us to have high quality AI systems in respective areas. And um, what we're seeing transpire today with the, um, the, the meetings in, in Washington, D.C., the, with the meetings in the EU, so on and so forth, they're putting regulatory aspects in place. This is no different than what we went through in terms of the food industry, in terms of the drug industry, in terms of when electricity was was um, uh, was invented. So we have to put these safety guardrails in place, and we don't have these yet today. And so, what does it mean from our data perspectives? What does it mean from transparency perspective? What does it mean from our incentive structures? These are all things that that we're having to do. Um, I view it in, in the landscape of the broader information ecosystem, so not so much in terms of just AI, but I view it where a world I want to live in is where we have an IBOM, an information bill of materials. And whether that's for a AI system, which is generating particular artwork or news or 
information in relation to a healthcare procedure or national security related, you know, use cases. Even if we wanted to today put in a regulatory aspect that says, here's an information bill of materials. And we need to be able to understand what's the provenance of the information that this algorithm or this AI system was trained upon and what's the manipulation that it went through, you know, or any aspects along that information supply chain. We don't have the technologies today that would enable us to do so. I think one of the biggest areas of opportunity is for us to be investing in and creating the solutions, the technologies, the incentive structures, the guard so that we can have an eye bomb on Anything that we consume uh, through an AI system or otherwise, whether it's in our in our personal worlds or in any enterprise world, so that's one of the things that, that at least most excites me and most interests me. That's super interesting, and I'm coming off the heels of a conversation with a gentleman by the name of John Hayes, and he's the founder and CEO of a company called Ghost Autonomy, and obviously, autonomy referring to autonomy autonomy in vehicles, so autonomous vehicles, and so. I asked a question around, uh, for example, how will, especially with the the pace at which auton- uh, autonomous technology is evolving and and accelerating, uh, how will legislation and the guardrails from like a legal and legislative standpoint um, be formed fast enough to be able to keep up? And so he actually came uh, with a, with a counterpoint to that. That actually historically, most of the technology that gets put out in vehicles, particularly, the legislation lags massively behind. So even for example, some of the cruise control features that we have in vehicles today, you know, in advanced cruise control and stuff, there's no legislation in place. There's no legal precedents or et cetera that are established to put the guardrails around that as of yet, right? So let alone autonomous technology that is going to be coming out in the next couple of years as it kind of exponentially accelerates. In terms of uh, the world of AI and kind of leveraging it as, as, as kind of you just articulated in these various in, um, use cases, putting in place the guardrails to have those infrastructures and systems for uh, sustainable quality AI platforms and technologies and tools, do you, find, do you feel it's going to be a similar thing where it'll lag uh, in terms of where the tech, what the technology is capable of and is being applied to versus what the guardrails can actually you know, put a wrapper around? Look, I think it already is. It's already lagging. I mean, that's that's the short short story. So I think this will be the case through human history. Uh, the question is, can we, you know, can we learn fast enough with each generational change in technology and, and generational shifts uh, in general? I think that what is critical here and and maybe, you know, I have a, I, I say my goal in life is to die naive rather than cynical. Um, <laughs> and so maybe I'm naive in my thinking here, but I, I view this last, call it 50 year half century perspective. And I, I mentioned this earlier, it's been 50 years of Milton Freemanism combined with 20 plus years of attention economy business models. Yeah. And I, I view it as it's going to be a blip in terms of, human history. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, if I look at the, you're talking about the, the regulatory aspects and lagging, well, from the venture ecosystem, the venture ecosystem is what is, is they're driving the innovations, the new technology developments to begin with. And let's take social media as an example. Tristan Harris, I, I think, you know, said it best where he said, you know, social media was humanity's first contact with AI and we lost. Okay. We can't afford to lose this this next go around. We lost because we were getting fat, drunk, and, and happy on with from an investment perspective. On look at you know all these revenues up into the right, so on and so forth in the social media attention economy world. And that's what it goes back to in terms, of, in terms of those plastic returns. We're now having more and more conversations as to yes, there's the regulatory aspect, but now to create and invent these new technologies and the responsibilities on the front end of who are the folks that are putting dollars into new inventions and technologies that are yet to come out, what's the responsibility there? And we haven't had a framework in place for that throughout the, the digital era period. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, even when, you know, you know, at the early internet days, Everyone thought it was just magical utopia, right? We're going to you know, open up the world's information and this is what it's going to be like. 
And we didn't think that we had to put these initial principles or aspects in place. So we're going through this maturity curve where that we we had to go through in, in our analog world. So all this stuff, all the incentives, all the guardrails, all the principles that we had to do in the analog world, we have never had to do in the digital world. Right. Ever. And I think now we're at this moment where, yes, regulations will always lag. So how do we change our framing as to what's the type of world we want to live in? And from the investment side, from the technology creation side, what's our responsibility there? And what are we doing? And yes, oh, we're always going to need strong institutions from a regulatory aspect, just like we did for food, for drugs, for electricity. You know, when electricity was developed, it was literally burning down buildings. So what had happened? We created something called Underwriters Lab, which put a safety standards and certification on every piece of electronic equipment we have today. When food and drugs were killing people because they were being hawked on the streets. Well, you know, we put in place both safety standards and nutrition labels and regulatory bodies to say, no, these are certified, vetted, safe foods to consume. Um, when uh, GAP accounting standards, prior to GAP accounting standards existing, you know, there were no financial accounting standards. Private industry was like, we need to have new standards that come in place so that we can have transparency and quality and integrity in our finances of which our economies run on, of which our societies run on. So how do we provide that transparency and that quality and that integrity? And then, oh, by the way, government, we need you to be a hammer on it as well. So that if there are bad actors that you police them, same is going to take place in relation to when there's AI or pick what's next. Just as you articulate that, it is hard not to, especially using the words, for example, to describe this as, as a blip in, in, in human history in, in this moment, right? But it being such a pivotal one in terms of us establishing these types of intensive structures, guardrails in the digital world really for the first time. It does, but in the grand scheme of things, still being that blip does can make one feel uh, small, Right. Especially, you know, whatever. Absolutely. And and as I'm thinking that and that's what my kind of internal reaction is to your comments, I'm balancing that with what you said earlier on in terms of defining what success means in terms of, you know, doing good, uh, influence, helping your kids kind of achieve sustainability and for them to be good people and help others. Right. And you know, obviously I'm oversimplifying it, but if you're able to balance understanding how small you are, but then finding the satisfaction in that definition of success, because you're able to still influence and do good through, through the, through whatever means you have, that can still make you feel full. And that's like this really interesting balance where kind of curiosity can sit right on the the knife's edge of that. Look, I I think that you said uh, perhaps you were you're simplifying. I think we need to simplify in the sense that um, at the end of our days, and, I, and I'll give you two two quick examples. One, Anna Applebaum had written a piece called "History Will Judge the Complicit," and she had interviewed the former foreign affairs minister from Poland who had died at ninety three, and he had been a prisoner of the Nazis and the Stalinists, and during World War II. And she had asked him, "What were the big ideas? What was it that turned the tide and changed things?" And his response was simply, there never were any big ideas. He said, we have a saying here, which roughly translates into just be a decent human being. Whether you were decent, that's all that matters. And I think that people are inherently good. Um, there are some assholes out there, obviously, and, and, and some you know true evil individuals. But people in general are inherently good, and they're, and they're hungering for... How do they align their their moral principles and, and and who they are with their economic incentives? And our challenge is that at the end of the day, how do we encourage um, people to to be decent human beings while helping align those economic incentives and structures that we have set up and created? And um, I think it's really simple, though, in in that respect of just be a decent human being. And um, then 
Um, it's up to us to figure out how do we change those those economic incentive structures. The other the other piece I'd, I'd put out is that a friend of mine who had said, you know, he, uh, he showed up at my my door one day and and um, he said, "I've been thinking about, about death lately," and I was like, "Are you okay? What's going on?" He's like, oh, "I'm all good." He said, "I've been thinking about what it means to die a meaningful death." Meaning having lived a good life. Right. And this, the summary was, we are small. We are finite. We have a limited amount of time. Yeah. And if we thought in a positive aspect of the time that we're given, how do I have a positive impact? What does that look like? Both, you know, myself and on, for myself and on others, you know, so on and so forth. Like maybe we all might live a bit better. Maybe we might treat each other in a better fashion. You know, maybe we would worry less about, you know, this crap over here, whatever it may be. And I think that that's, we, we have one go around at this. And I don't think we think about that uh, in a positive light uh, as consciously as we should. And if we did, then we probably do things a lot differently. Yeah, I can't think of a more powerful sentiment to kind of leave this conversation off on than that. And and I hope, you know, I'm certainly it it certainly resonates with me and I hope that it does with 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 listeners as as they listen to this and and use it as inspiration to how they approach their own lives and work. Um, But, you know, Matt, I, I can't thank you enough for the time you spent sharing and chatting today. It's been incredibly rich and dense conversation with so many takeaways for me and for others. Um, this has been a huge pleasure. So sincere thank you for your time, your energy and, and your honesty. It's been it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Peter, great to, to be with you. And thank you.